My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 26 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Dr. Kyle Ortigo, who's a certified psychedelic psychotherapist and author of the new book, Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration. What is helpful and I think is in the spirit of these experiences in the medicine is a servant leadership mindset that there's being a CEO of a company, uh, leading a retreat or you know, being a psychologist, right? Working with someone one-on-one, even though that may be a position of ascribed power in some way that we aren't doing it for ourselves, right? There's something bigger than us, greater than us that, that we're, we're engaging with this work. With. And I think that's the other thing that is important when I think of leadership, it's, it's not these titles, it's not these roles, but we can all be a leader if we're really cultivating the, the deeper work, if we're doing the work ourselves of integration or um, developing a skill set to serve a broader community or, or purpose, that just by being a, an example of that work, we are, are providing a leadership. Uh, and we don't need any title for that, but just to be out there and be ourselves. I call it ego whiplash when talking about the integration process. What happens when you, you know, chase ego death? You have it. You have a full-blown mystical experience, and you come back, and you're back in your job, and you got to like work, work, work. Um, there are so many people who become self-appointed shamans, right? Or they become integration coaches after one psychedelic journey, and that may be their path, right? I, I don't want to dismiss that, but. It takes a lot of work and, and deeper reflection about uh, the, the downsides of doing, um, whether it's psychedelics or trying to guide people in some of these, these journeys and experiences. There are endless levels of nuance and complexity. And I think being able to understand how we can all fall off the path, however we want to define that, is important. I really loved this conversation with Kyle Ortigo. There are some good gems in this episode, especially the second half of this interview where we talk about psychedelic integration specifically for leaders, regardless of what domain you find yourself in. So we talk about acceptance, curiosity, and the difference between healthy and unhealthy surrender, which I found really interesting. And in the second half, when we focus more on the topic of leadership, we dive into the topics of spiritual bypassing and shadow work, as well as the importance of taking time for self-reflection. We also talk about narcissism, and I made a comment about how we have a very negative view of narcissism in our culture these days, and I wanted to include a little note here about what sparked that comment for me. I recently listened to an interview with Tammy Simon on her podcast, Insights at the Edge, that I just love, and she interviewed Keith Campbell on the new science of narcissism, which offered a broader and maybe a more balanced perspective on this topic. And I won't get into all the details here, but I'll include that episode of Insights at the Edge in the show notes. 
But in essence, we can see all of these personality traits as like a spectrum. We actually want to fall somewhere in the middle because being too high, but also being too low on some of these traits like openness or agreeableness or neuroticism can have advantages and disadvantages. And so I just wanted to mention this to prevent this mentality of just making these blanket statements like, oh, that's bad. And yes, we do absolutely need to be mindful and aware of an amplification of neuroticism, which does happen for some people when working with psychedelics. But I also want to just bring that balanced perspective here. And I love this term that Kyle coined called ego whiplash. And I just love how words and concepts like this can help us become more aware of the drawbacks of working with psychedelics and what we need to pay more attention to. And so I highly recommend checking out his book, Beyond the Narrow Life. I love that title, published by Synergetic Press. And I really love that team over at Synergetic Press. And I want to give them a big shout out here because they're just, they're doing awesome work. And they also offered a special discount just for you for listeners of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast to receive 20% off the book with coupon code LIVEFREE. And I'll include that in the show notes. Okay, so I'm keeping this intro pretty short today, but my heart is feeling full and inspired and my three-month microdosing mastermind program is off to an amazing start and it's keeping me super full right now. And FYI, I'm still calling in a full-time executive assistant, so please reach out to me if you feel called to explore that possibility through my website, livefreelauraD.com. And on my website, you can also access some amazing resources as well as some awesome freebies like my free playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond and my free eight day microdosing course. I'm going to leave you with a song called Help Us Love by Mikey Pauker, who's a dear brother on this path and Johanna One Heart. And so help us love, you know, help us love our shadow sides, help us love all parts of ourselves within the full spectrum of what it means to be human. And I think that's really great advice for integrating our psychedelic experiences to bring a lot of loving kindness and self-compassion to ourselves on this path, on this journey. And I think that's the key, you know, if we want to learn how to love our neighbors and love other people who trigger us, for example, I think it starts with ourselves. But don't be too obsessed with loving yourself because that would make you a narcissist. (laughs) Just kidding, but not really. Okay, without any further ado, here is my wonderful conversation with Kyle Ortigo, who offers wise integration advice for the leaders of our time. Welcome, Kyle Ortigo. This is so nice to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. I, I've started listening to the podcast and really appreciated a lot of the topics, conversations, what you're putting out there. Uh, some really critical conversations, right, that we're all needing to have a, about this space and just the world at large right now. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. And I haven't really covered the topic of psychedelic integration, especially from your unique vantage point. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And so you're a clinical psychologist, you're a certified psychedelic psychotherapist and founder of the Center for Existential Exploration. And you also recently just published a book. I think it's coming out this month, right? By Synergetic Press. And big shout out to all the folks at Synergetic Press. such a wonderful crew over there. 
And your book is called Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration. It's quite the title, Kyle. So why this title and what does it mean? Yeah, you know, what's interesting for a lot of authors, and I'm one of them, is you write a book, it could be 50, 100,000 words, and then coming up with the title is the hardest part out of all of it. (laughs) And that one was actually when I came up for my final chapter. Uh, which was Beyond the Narrow Life. My publisher really liked that. And I I thought, of course, once they recommended it as the main title, because that was the destination of this journey that I, I had set up for the reader. And there are a few different layers of meaning, which is appropriate when we, we talk about psychedelics and existential thought, I think. And what it fundamentally meant to me initially was looking beyond uh, a life that's very narrowly defined and confined in terms of one's sense of perspective and possibility and and meaning. And so the, the final chapter really dives into creativity, including creative problem solving, symbolic expression, and just what your life can be when all of those training wheels are taken off after you do some of the deeper work. So that's a fundamental theme of the book and what the journey is about. But of course, we all know with all journeys, you can't skip to the end. You have to go through um, the process of unfolding. And that's what the book fundamentally tries to do for every reader. Right. Okay. There's so much I want to dive into here. And you talk about the reader as a hero. So going through this journey, you know, reading through the book to arrive to this end chapter, you know, beyond the narrow life. So what do you mean by the reader as a hero? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the hero is an archetype. So thinking about Joseph Campbell and, and Carl Jung, those are, are two theorists that have really influenced me. So when we talk about archetypes, we all, always have to have this caveat that we're talking about a form without strict content. There are many different types of heroes. There are many um, stories of heroes, and there are many ways to be a hero as an individual in our world. So the the first and most fundamental that applies to everyone who I was speaking to in the book is the uh, reader, the protagonist of a story, right? And from an existential perspective too, we are the authors of our, our own story, our own life choices and, and what unfolds for us. So really emphasizing that sense of agency um, and individuality, it w- was a big part for me. But when we think about what a hero is in its more fundamental core, I think, and at least how we talk about it in most of our societies, is the hero is someone that protects their community. They protect um, people that they love, they care for, and they do so in a variety of ways. But primarily, like the fundamental core hero from Joseph Campbell's work, at least, is not someone by the end of the story, at least, that's fighting for their their own motivation or, or causes that are very much driven by the ego or success or pride or things like that. They're fighting for something larger, something more meaningful and Mm. something that does help others. Mm, That's beautiful. You know, I find it so fascinating that just a few years ago, we never heard anyone talking about plant medicine integration, psychedelic integration, and now it's becoming almost part of our common vernacular. I mean, it's really kind of amazing to see 
in a sense, the way the movement is growing up and maturing and taking more responsibility around how we can really integrate these experiences into our everyday lives. And it's nice that now we're sort of all coming out of the closet and meeting in the light and having these open conversations. I know for a long time, you know, I was very alone in my process around integration. I had to cultivate my own integration practices. And as my listeners have heard me say before, my mind likes to think in Venn diagrams. And so yes. a big, a huge influence in terms of my own integration has been Eastern philosophy. And Pema Chodron is one of my primary teachers and I hear her voice in my head all the time. And it's really been such a big influence, not just for, you know, my own integration, but the work I do with other people. And she always says, you know, the spiritual journey in essence is going from narrow mind to open mind. And so to mm. me, there's just such a strong overlap with even that body of wisdom and transpersonal psychology and mm -hmm. the way that we move beyond our narratives to think bigger and which has motivated, you know, me to go back to graduate school and get this degree in creative studies and change leadership and looking at the overlap between, you know, creative problem solving and psychedelics. So I love that, you know, you're taking this from a slightly different angle, but what were some of your big influences here? Like if we were to pop up a Venn diagram here, you know, what, what big circles would be on, on the table? Yeah. I, I love that you bring up that image because it's one that guides me all the time because I have such wide interests as well. And so, and there are so many different opinions out there about everything, including what psychedelic integration is, um, what's the role of psychedelics in an individual journey versus community. And I like to, in the indigenous versus science, right? That's a big one that we're having some really important critical conversations about too. So I do think of a Venn diagram and I like to place my bets on those places that there's overlap where there are many different pathways to get to a similar conclusion. One of those examples that I know you've talked about, I think in, in your podcast before is interconnectedness, right? That is like, how do you deny interconnectedness from, from any of these different angles, even if we go from a strictly materialistic conservative science point of view. Um, but I, I think that was the challenge of writing this book right now is there are a lot of opinions out there. There are a lot of controversies. There are different ideologies about even just the nature of reality itself in places that I think we can find overlap, but that's hard. There's a lot of ambiguity that we have to tolerate when trying to navigate these various worldviews and perspectives. And, and for me, types of readers, that's very much something that I do in my clinical practice too. And I think just by mere exposure from a variety of people, we begin to have these conversations. But what I was trying to do in the book is, is not make some argument about the fundamental nature of reality or say that psychedelic integration means you do step one, two, three, four, five, um, like some, some people like to do, while recognizing that's helpful to have a structure, right? Even if it's a structure that you fight against or you argue against, um, sometimes that's part of the creative process itself. So I, I think science was important to me because I, I'm a PhD doctor in clinical psychology and like science was so much a part of our training at the same time as art was important in the therapeutic process itself. It's not that you throw treatment manuals at, at someone and they automatically get better, but trying to weave in 
some of the perspective of science, like what are some of the places that we can have some level of confidence about what we know about the nature of reality, um, while also recognizing that there's a lot of mystery out there to play with. And I think that's where the, the creativity came in for me as an author and why it was fundamental while writing the book and helping someone go through these journeys that they be a part of that process too. I didn't want to take the perspective of here's this psychologist or here's this guy telling you <laughs> what reality is or what psychedelic integration is, but like, here are some ideas kind of exposing people to a, a broad swath of perspectives and, and things that have been helpful for me. And then ask the questions like, how does this apply to your life? That's why I start with cosmic awareness. Like what does the sheer magnitude of the cosmos and space and time mean to you as an individual living now? Like going to that question is more important than um, explaining quantum theory to, mm -hmm. to a reader. Mm -hmm. But it's that relationship that I think is built over time um, that we build with ourselves and others. So the overlapping circles, like it depends on what are those other circles for me and the reader, it was kind of cultivating this very special relationship through writing. And um, why I try to think of myself as being just another person along the path with them, mm -hmm. not, not the expert coming in but helping guide as I'm learning from them too. That's how I do my clinical work. So that's mm -hmm. how I wanted to do my writing as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you define psychedelic integration? What's your definition? You know, from a very basic standpoint, I think it's helpful to start there is, is just bringing to life the lessons or experiences that you received during a psychedelic journey. And what that's, it's an art of translation really, I think fundamentally, and translation is always imperfect. So for some people, especially having a very profound mystical-like experience, what that translation is, um, that integration process is, really depends on what their life is like already, like before and immediately after the journey. And I think I, I've spoken to some people who believe that integration happens naturally and organically after having a powerful experience. And I think there's a certain extent that's true. But I also have spoken to people uh, who've reached out to me for integration support. And their problem is they had a beautiful sense of interconnectedness and deep meaning, and it opened their eyes to possibility. And so nothing about the journey itself was challenging, but the challenge was they worked in this job that was not meaningful to them or was about material success. And um, so that was the work of integration was kind of figuring out this conflict and what the implications of this experience was for them. But uh, like a lot of people, this person ended up canceling or no showing in the first meeting and I never heard back from them again, which happens so that it's scary to think about integration that actually challenges one's worldview and, and life circumstances. Um, but that's, that's one example of, of how it applies, but it's, it's always unfolding. I think that is something that wouldn't be too controversial to say that there are people, even after having like hundreds of psychedelic journeys, they're still integrating that first experience, which was so powerful for them. Mm, where but it's you, a meaning-making process too, I think, in a practice. 
Right. Meaning making. And that I think is the process of what it means to be alive. And I really love a lot of what Charles Eisenstein has to say about that. And yeah, the conversation that we had on the podcast was really interesting about, you know, going through the journey and then having to face life and going from this very interconnected experience to this world of separation and this world of disconnection that we live in. And so I'm curious as someone who supports people through integration, where do you balance the take your time in making big decisions, you know, going through the psychedelic journey and then being like, wow, I need to quit my job. Where do you support people in slowing down in the process and following through with the actions that they know intuitively that make the most most sense for them to step into right relationship with their lives? Yeah. I mean, these recommendations that we all have about not making impulsive decisions are really important and critical when it's also balanced with using that energy, that knowledge, that insight to to good effect. And I think the, the taking the time is obvious here, but what that means is time that you're actually actively reflecting on and working with on whatever that move is that you're trying to make, whether it's realizing a relationship's not as connected and deeply satisfying or right for you to um, would have I not tried yet to improve the relationship? You know, I'm a therapist, so I might recommend couples therapy or or doing some deeper work on communication, see if something's salvageable there. Cause it's often not that we get the final conclusion um, in a, in a journey or experience, but we, we get um, illumination about something that's not quite working. Right. Mm -hmm. But the time to reflect and really use our our minds, uh, those cognitive abilities uh, to good effect of of trying to think about the pros and cons of making a move, how you might do it. And then if you, let's say that initial impulse to break up or to quit the job was the right one after doing this reflection, then the time is used to, to plan so that you reduce the likely harm to yourself and others by making that move, making that exit. So it's not necessarily about changing the final decision, but how to approach it so that you're, you improve the likelihood of a, a successful um, launching off or, or denouement of a relationship or, or something that's not working for you anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in addition to all of the basic recommendations that most people make around integration, which is like, take your time, get rest, eat healthy. Sometimes I recommend that people don't just jump back into their sort of quote unquote everyday reality. Maybe take a little bit of spaciousness before if you, let's say, go to an ayahuasca retreat for 10 days, have like a halfway house before going back home. You know, that could be one recommendation. So in addition to sort of all of the the foundational basics, what would you say, let's put like a conceptual roadmap on the table here. What's a framework that you're suggesting working with your clients and in the book that people can really sort of get a good tangible sense of through this conversation? Mm-hmm. Well, the book is the most structured, right? Because it, it's written with, with chapters. All, all these things create that sense of safety and linearity and a process is very nonlinear. So I think we, we can go there. Um, I structured it in terms of three main phases, the, the entire journey. And the first was uh, expanding awareness 
And I had m- metaphorical allies and attitudes for each of those arcs. And the, the attitude there was uh, one of curiosity. Mm. So to help us expand our awareness, we need to work on um, cultivating that sense of curiosity. And the second was confronting the deeper existential trials of initiation, these deeper questions that we all have to face as, as humans. And they deal with impermanence, death, mortality, loss, uh, the interconnectedness versus isolation, loneliness, alienation, and finally meaning um, versus meaninglessness or absurdity, how to navigate those. And that attitude to help with, with those deeper questions and to avoid spiritual by- bypass was one of acceptance. And then the final arc was integrating the, the insights into one's life and to a, a broader sense of self, capital L, self um, thinking from Jung and his, his model of individuation primarily. And the attitude that was cultivated through those three chapters is one of wisdom, like putting all of these insights in, into practice and recognizing the endless nuance in it. Mm. So that's my model for integration. And I used it and created it because it it paralleled the phases of the hero's journey for your readers or listeners that know that and Joseph Campbell's work. And it also paralleled the phases of psychedelic psychotherapy. So I I liked uh, having all those um, overlapping circles since we were talking about that earlier and, and where that is a little bit different than probably most models of integration is that most models of integration are focusing on the the third phase or what happens after the ceremony. Um, But I I think this is cyclical, right? It's not a linear process. So, um, you know, for people who've had multiple journeys or haven't had any journey at all, this work of integration, what we're calling psychedelic integration is actually something that is available to all of us. And, And it's a journey that we can repeat and going into these deeper questions and coming out the other side. Mm. putting whatever gems that we found into practice. I absolutely love that. I don't know if you tuned into the solo episode I did just on cultivating the mindset of curiosity, because I think that that is such a big way that we actually train our minds to think bigger. That is beyond the narrow life. That is narrow mind to open mind. It's the bridge. And we can draw upon questions that help us to engage in that sense of curiosity and wonder, open-mindedness, open-heartedness. And I think we need that, especially right now through this time of separation and polarization and division. So let's go into the second sort of category, the second phase. I also love this term impermanence. I did my episode number four on bowing at the altar of impermanence. Let's talk about this. You are the founder of the Center for Existential Exploration. You cannot, I'm sure, go through that kind of exploration without really making peace with this fundamental reality of impermanence. So let's talk there. What are some of the suggestions that you're encouraging people to take action around, maybe questions of inquiry that people can lean into, any direction you want to run with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, for my my practice, that existential exploration is just such a big bucket, right? And, and for most people I say who come to see me, it does involve questions around relationships, uh, either that alienation they have or um, lack of true intimacy with others. Usually those things are connected themselves. Uh, loss, uh, but more often than not, a, a lack of meaning 
in life is, is what a lack of purpose. That's what uh, is a part of their presenting concern. What I, I mean, I came to existential thought when I was pretty young, but what I, I like to highlight that has become important is that a lot of people assume existential thinking and these existential uh, dilemmas and questions really are uh, leading people to nihilism. And existential thought is not about nihilism. It rejects nihilism um, for the most part, which is a, a giving up, um, a complete unhealthy surrender. Um, so what I think has been helpful for me is thinking about these in terms of trials. These are themes that we all really do confront in life. Uh, we're all we all have to face loss of the people that we love or connected to. We all have to think about our own mortality. And that kind of sets the stage just from a, a temporal standpoint of time. Uh, we have finite time. We don't know when our time is up. And that's scary for most of us if we're really being honest about it. But um, if we were to confront that and, and bring that into our conversation and what we do for the day, what we do for um, the week, the month, uh, the years, then I think it shifts our perspective from our kind of individual self and, and trying to avoid thinking about these scary things to really opening up to possibility. All these themes are connected to me, and I think they are for other people, but maybe in different pathways. Perhaps it's loneliness. That is that initial spark of exploration that if you can trigger that, then um, they, they go into these questions of what is a meaningful connection? What is a meaningful relationship? How do I get there? And then we can get into the practicality of it. So I, I, I think if we confront these things with some sense of courage, it's not that fear goes away, but to have some courage uh, about it and to question, to bring in that curiosity again, as we explore uh, then we will find things that we will have to, to think about and, and realize that we'll have to accept. So that's why acceptance was such an important attitude there because curiosity can take us so far, but sometimes it fails, right? Um, in, in the toughest of times with a, a loss that is just too deep, uh, it can bring us part of the way. I think having some understanding of what it is that we have to accept about a loss or about not knowing what um, the fundamental nature of reality is or what our life's meaning is. Is there only one path to finding life's meaning or not? I think that's when we begin to open up to um, all the areas of life that we do have agency. We do have a sense of play that we can create something. And, and that's uh, that sense of possibility. I think is where it naturally evolves. I love that you just framed that as like curiosity can get us only so far. And then because we can get totally lost in what is the purpose and why am I here? And even that can be very disorienting if we just get sort of stuck in curiosity and moving beyond curiosity, trans curiosity, I like this term, is like <laughs> looking at acceptance and making peace. And you also referenced unhealthy surrender, which means that you also have a framework around healthy surrender. So I think that, yeah, there's all of these additional sort of components that we need to look at that curiosity might start the journey, but acceptance, making peace with 
life is a big part of that. And so how do you encourage people who are in that sort of arc of the hero's journey? What are some of the anchor points that we can draw upon to help us sort of draw meaning to bring greater fulfillment and purpose into our lives? Yeah, I I think what happens sometimes for people who are feeling loss is for a period of time, they might have taken on the mantle of someone else's sense of purpose or meaning. And they emulated their heroes or or their favorite models, ideas, um, even mythology, religion, and it didn't quite fit or there, there was some mismatch there. But I think what I see and what is actually something I do with all of my clients is bring in this exploration of one's personal values, things that feel intuitively right and true and important, even, or maybe even especially when we can't explain them away. So um, being able to put aside our thinking mind sometimes and, and go into our heart and our intuition is part of that process for me. So the the acceptance though is is the serenity prayer. I, I think that one's a really nice one, and, and of course it's used a lot in people who have addiction um, issues. It's fundamental in AA, but there's some version of that that I think is in a lot of wisdom teachings around the world. But finding that that line between what we we need to accept and what we we actually have agency to change is really critical. And I think when I said like unhealthy surrender, I'm thinking of avoidance, like some form of avoidance, like giving up your sense of responsibility um, for whatever reason, because it feels a bit more comfortable not to take action or not to try to create change, um, which inertia is a real thing. So the presence of it and and lack of it. So um, This is something that psychotherapy, modern psychotherapy has really confronted explicitly too, is that avoidance can reinforce these negative behavioral patterns and prevent us from actually growing and expanding and and finding that that sense of agency again. So these personal values are our compass that we can follow when we're, we're trying to navigate this terrain of things that we are outside of our control and things that we might have control or influence on and the things that we definitely have um, control and influence with. So, you know, in a relationship, since I, I used that as one example earlier, we only have influence over how we phrase something, how, how we communicate our feelings, our needs, and we can be the best expert at communication. Might say you could be a psychologist who does this with their clients and it's still challenging, but even when you you do it at an expert level, it's still the other person that has to respond, right? It's a give and take. So communication is a good example of that, but all of these life decisions, I, I think there's this dance, this back and forth. And there, the question of like, is this a healthy relationship or not is one where you try it out. You try on these different ways of communicating actively, trying to open up, be more authentic, to take some risks to build some intimacy and and trust. And then if the other person just isn't there yet, they can't respond in that way. Then, you know, the, the question goes to, well, can I accept that their limitations or do I need something more? Mm. So that's, that's how acceptance, I think kind of plays, plays out in one of those examples. 
it's a common thing in, in my work actually as a psychologist is relationship challenges. Right. Interesting. And the notion of healthy surrender versus unhealthy surrender makes me think of this notion in Eastern philosophy around like non-attachment, like healthy non-attachment, like holding it lightly versus being detached. Yes. Right. And so, and it's so nuanced. It's really tricky. It's, it's like the topic of spiritual bypass. It's just so nuanced and so tricky. I want to talk about spiritual bypass in a moment, but before Mm -hmm. we get there, I'm just curious, like really speaking to this topic in relationship to leadership. Okay. So people who are working with psychedelics. And we know now, I mean, so many people are stepping into this space, working with psychedelics, whether they're leaders in the psychedelic space or whatever domain that they find themselves in, especially for leaders, what do you think are the key things that people should be thinking about in terms of psychedelic integration for all leaders, regardless of what domain they're in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I do think spiritual bypass is one of those. So I'm glad we'll, we'll talk about that. So I think understanding spiritual bypass, understanding avoidance of complexity and nuance, I think to really be a leader in, in this space probably accounts for most spaces too. Like you, you have to be able to dive deeper into complexity and um, not knowing that curiosity again is so helpful with that. And recognizing that there are pieces of the puzzle that all of us have and the people who are may not be in a leadership position, that they have a lot more information that you don't have, even though you may be the leader of a company or a retreat, like it's really respecting that, that difference and um, that this complexity offers so many opportunities for all of us to be involved. Um, I think with leadership and psychedelics, I mean, there are so many controversies going on as psychedelics become more mainstream, right? And capitalism and indigenous culture versus Western culture. Uh, there are some critical conversations that we're having. I know you've, you've had to, that I appreciated listening to you and your guests um, riff on this stuff. But I think what is helpful and I think is in the spirit of these experiences in the medicine is a, a servant leadership mindset that there's being a CEO of a company, uh, leading a retreat or, you know, being a psychologist, right? Working with someone one-on-one, even though that may be a position of ascribed power in some way that we aren't doing it for ourselves, right? There's something bigger than us, uh, greater than us that that we're, we're engaging with this work with. That's not always the case. I think recognizing that too is, is part of this challenge of, bringing this concept of spiritual bypass to um, the broader world is that, yeah, people can talk the talk. We can talk the talk. I can talk the talk, but I need to be able to be critical um, of my own actions and my sense of integrity and authenticity as, as I enter into these new relationships with others, regardless of what my position is. And I think that's the other thing that is important when I think of leadership, it's, it's not these titles, it's not these roles but we can all be a leader if we're really cultivating the, the deeper work, if we're doing the work ourselves of integration or um, developing a skill set to serve a broader community or, or purpose, that just by being a, an example of that work, we are, are providing a leadership uh, and we don't need any title for that. 
but mm-hmm. just to be out there and be ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we were talking last week, you made a really good point about just how you frame leadership. You can lead from the front. You want to keep running with that yeah. sentence? Yeah. <laughs> this I have a lot of stories in my life where I like I I went to that. This is from high school actually that I I got introduced to this model, but I don't remember anything about that week. It was a leadership week and uh, that I grew up in the South and in the South, we have boy state and girl state and they're, you get nominated them for them. I think for your teachers for your leadership ability. And then you go, and at least in Arkansas, it was going to listen to a lot of politicians talk about <laughs> being leaders, which isn't always, you know, the right model necessarily that we, we'd want. But the one thing I remember about that whole week was this model of leading from up front within and behind as three types of leaders. The leading up front is what most of us think about. It's the charismatic leader, the CEO, the person giving the TED talk, and they're trying to inspire, to direct in, uh, that's a traditional, at least in the West form of leadership. Leadership from behind is more like a shepherding. So it's, it's someone who may be a part of a team or a community they have a sense of the vision, but the leadership style is really to help the team work through the issues or, or set the task and work on executing them. And then the leader from behind is, is just gently guiding when necessary, but it's a bit more hands-off. Leading from within is being actively a part of the team, a part of the community, and you're working on you know, your piece of the puzzle that you're really passionate about or something that speaks to your skill set and those qualities of authenticity I talked about, meaning these personal values, like you're really cultivating those in this, this setting, whether it's work or you know, other type of community. And you're supporting others who are doing the same thing, right? Not the same thing as you are, but following their own path. And so you're, you're helping, encouraging them. You're leading by example. Um, but you're, you're ideally in a group of people where you're all um, feeding off of each other's positive energy and, and learning and talents and coming together and, and not needing to be told what to do either from up front or behind. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate that model, probably the most. Mm, I really love that. And so do you think that one person can learn how to really embody all three leadership styles and that that's actually the most beneficial is to learn how to draw upon the right one at the right time. Yeah, I do think generally in life, that's a helpful strategy is to get a a lay of the land and try these different hats on for yourself. There's a part of this that's just personality too. Like Mm -hmm. what, what plays to your strengths, but if you really want to be a leader then I do think it's helpful to have an understanding of how others can be leaders in different ways than you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we need to match these different styles with our, our our personalities, our problem that we're working on, our mm-hmm. cultural context that we're in, mm-hmm. and, and our, our coworkers, colleagues, and friends and family. So I, I do think it's nice just to know, even if you don't try on all those different hats, which would be great if you could, Um, just so that you can respect and see leaders who are doing it in a very different way than you are. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so for people who are leading from the front and 
might have more of a tendency towards ranking a little higher on the scales of narcissism. And we can also have healthy narcissism. It's like not necessarily a, a fully quote unquote bad thing. I think we have a very negative connotation of narcissism in our culture right now, especially. And I think we are seeing this pattern of people who are higher on narcissistic tendencies to sort of have that quality enhanced after psychedelic journeys. And so there is an interesting place where, you know, psychedelics and leadership can potentially fuel higher degrees of narcissism. What's your thoughts on that? And any words of advice for people to really pay a lot of attention, become very aware if you might fall into that category? Yeah. I, I do talk about this a little bit in my book too, when talking about the shadow and there are so many different angles to take, but I would really start with a practice of self-reflection. Uh, and that is hard for people who like CEOs are busy. All of us are busy now, especially for leading in, in one way or another to take some time off so that um, you can set aside your action steps and in your meetings and ask some of these more challenging questions about your direction that you're going in, the things that you think you're doing well, the things that are more challenging for you, because we all have challenges. We all have character qualities that are double-edged swords. They work in some ways and are very beneficial, and then they can also hurt us, hurt us and in, in, in our team. Um, I call it ego whiplash when talking about the integration process. What happens when you, you know, chase ego death you have it, you have a full-blown mystical experience and you come back and you're back in your job and you got to like work, work, work. Um, there are so many people who become self-appointed shamans, right? Or they become integration coaches after one psychedelic journey. And that may be their path, right? I, I don't want to dismiss that, but it takes a lot of work and, and deeper reflection about uh, the the downsides of doing um, whether it's psychedelics or trying to guide people in some of these, these journeys and experiences, there are endless levels of nuance and complexity. And I think being able to understand how we can all fall off the path, however we want to define that is important because although in a psychedelic experience, we may feel very special or, or like, like a hero, for example, or, you know, part of the cosmos if we feel like we're more special than other people uh, and, and it becomes a, a dominance hierarchy, then I think that's the ego taking over and telling us things that we want to hear. There's a trickster quality of psychedelics sometimes. Okay. And I think that's why a community around integration is helpful because we can see how other people are confronting these complexities and see some examples, unfortunately, too, of people struggling. Um, and we've seen that with the QAnon shaman is, is one example that's been out there in the news earlier this year. Um, and I don't know his full story from what I've heard. Like he didn't seem like a, an awful narcissistic guy all the time. No one really is always um, one way or the other, but it's easy to kind of go down a path of, that, that's more violent or destructive or um Mm -hmm. harmful to society, even when we think we're, we're doing something right. Mm -hmm. 
It just requires a tremendous amount of humility, which isn't always easy. You know, I mean, we have these big experiences and then it's like, we just want to like champion psychedelics. And we're seeing so many people do that right now. And it's just amazing to see the way that psychedelics are having such a big influence on our culture right now. And we do have to just hold it with just so much humility and groundedness. And it's not, it's not always easy to, to do that. So I think community is a really big piece of that. And I, and just having people that we trust to give us honest reflections, to help check ourselves and, you know, grow in our communities, I think is essential. Um, let's talk about spiritual bypassing. How do you define it? And let's dive into it. Yeah, spiritual bypassing, it was coined by John Wellwood. He was a psychologist and existential Buddhist thinker and teacher too. And, you know, in its broadest form, it's using spiritual concepts or ideas as a temporary or, or less than temporary way to cope with some deeper distress or pain or um, difficulty confronting the darker side of life. Or, or community or the cosmos, if we want to expand out all the way. And uh, some examples that, of course, we hear in spiritual and, and psychedelic communities is it's all love, all is one. Like it's these concepts like interconnectedness that I think are fundamentally true oftentimes, but then they become some platitude or, or some way of uh, escaping difference or harm that that's done um, indiscriminately to, to certain people in a community if we're looking at interconnectedness. So I think confronting spiritual bypass is part of what shadow work does itself. And that's another term that gets thrown around or right. phrase shadow work. Um, but I think having a, an eye on what the shadow is, at least in theory, and then seeing some examples is one way to do that. The shadow is just um, that which we don't know uh, about ourselves or about society or, or nature. Uh, that's a non-judgmental way of looking at it, but often things are in the shadow because there is some judgment, like uh, even going all the way out to the problem of evil. How do we confront that? And so in that example, all is love. Yet we live in a world where there's so much violence and um, like not only murder, but assault. Like there's so much um, pain that it is not a manifestation of love, at least how we think about it in every day. So when these phrases or these ideas are used as a way to skip over the deeper work, the harder work where we do play with complexity and nuance and, and challenge and ambiguity and not knowing then I, I think that's where we get into to trouble. And that's why like a self-ordained shaman is, is probably not the, the best way of going about that model because we, we do need to recognize that our egos are always active, no matter how many ego death experiences we might've had, uh, that we kind of assimilate some of these ideas in ways that are easier to hear, or they, if it's not easier to hear, it, it works already with our pre-existing belief system and mm -hmm. worldview. Mm -hmm. It's funny, as you were starting to talk about spiritual bypass, my mind just drew a big circle with spiritual bypass overlapping with shadow work. <laughs> it was like, this <laughs> is just where my mind went. And then you, you know, mentioned shadow work. So, I mean, there's so much to say here about this. I mean, we could probably talk for hours and hours just about this topic, but 
you know, I think it's helpful for people to remember that anything could be used as a method to move away from rather than make contact with. You can meditate for 20 years as a very powerful tool for spiritual bypassing, you know, and just even recognizing that is really profound and just kind of mind-blowing in a certain way. So if it's in the shadow, though, you know, if we're doing it unconsciously, if we're moving away unconsciously, how do we start to bring the content of the shadow into the light? Do we need psychedelics for that? Is it a process of inquiry? Are there questions we can use? Like, what do we really do to start getting ourselves on the path of looking at what's in the shadow? Mm -hmm. Really important question. I, I will say, no, we don't need psychedelics to do that. Um, but that's, that's true of most things. Like people don't need psychotherapy to do that. And it's helpful, right? I think what we do need when it comes to shadow work is other people. And they're always involved because the shadow is first and foremost, once it's formed, projected onto others. Mm. So any form of othering um, in black and white thinking about groups of people or a specific person that's a clue, I think, to look into your shadow. Like, what is it that you're projecting onto them or that you see in them that is also speaking to some underlying insecurity or um, place of hidden motivation that you have in yourself? Mm -hmm. and, and that's a hard question to really ask and grapple with, but it's one that I, I think is, is important. It's not that the shadow stops getting projected onto others. I think that's just such a well-worn path. It's one of the ways our ego can protect itself that uh, having some compassion for yourself and of course, other people about that is important. If you can have some compassion for yourself, then you can recognize the ways in which you might be suffering or you might have fear that you're holding or self-doubt and, and that you're trying to escape that. But if you cultivate this compassion for yourself, and then that would expand to other people, you can begin to do some of this deeper exploration about what your shadow is, how it shows up, and then how other people's shadows show up, mm -hmm. right? And what may be projected onto you too from right. the outside. I want to get there in a second, but give us a concrete example. So you're saying projecting onto other people. So Concrete example. How do I know that my shadow is surfacing? I am saying what to someone else? Mm. If you, I, I, I would say even before you say something to someone else, if you're watching TV or you, you see something on social media or you see a clip of a politician that thinks something very differently than you, if you have this like physical embodied response of like agitation, anger, frustration, um, even, even hate outrage, that those are probably good signals to pick up on before you say anything. <laughs> and of course, you're in a live situation with someone, you might be saying something already before you even notice, uh, those, those precursors. So hate is one, one example. I think it's the most uncomfortable to talk about, especially when we're, we're, um, discussing, issues around like love interconnectedness, but it, it is one of those human emotions and attitudes that, that can develop over time too. So that's an, a relatively extreme example, but if, 
let's say you're at a, a psychedelic conference and there are various speakers coming up on stage and then there's someone that comes up, maybe you knew them before, maybe you don't, and they're talking and there's something that's just really unsettling to you about what they're saying or how they're saying it. And it's, it's not just an intellectual thing. Shadow work isn't just intellectual, it's primarily emotional. And you notice this, this agitation, this intensity of response to you. You look to your neighbor, they may be having a fine time, or it may be a completely neutral conversation or, or topic or presenter. So that's a sign too. If you're having a different reaction than other people, um, then doing some reflection about what is it that they're triggering in me? Um, we were talking about narcissism earlier. Like, are they talking like they're an expert? Is that triggering something in me about not wanting to come off that way? Is there a part of me that that is jealous or envious of them having the stage, having the mic? You know, these are the types of questions and maybe an example that that fits with that. That's great. I was waiting for you to use the word trigger. You used a whole bunch of other words and then you didn't quite use the word trigger yet. And I was like thinking it in my mind because, and that's also very similar to, I don't know if you're familiar with Pema's teaching. Well, it's actually Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche's teaching on Shempa. And Shempa is the trigger. It's like how we get hooked to this like pre-verbal. That's why the, the Eastern philosophy for me is like fundamental. It just relates to pretty much everything else that we see out there, or at least the way it works in my own mind anyway. But this notion of Shempa is like how we get hooked. It's pre-verbal. It's like this tightening that we feel. And the more that we actually pay attention to that, I think that that's also a really helpful roadmap towards shadow, shadow work. It's sort of the entry. And we want to immediately cover over it and bolt and push it away. I'm justified. Come on. That person on the stage is saying the thing. This is irresponsible. I'm justified in what I'm saying. You know, we cover over it in all these ways, but it actually is the entry point. Now, here's my question for you. Uh, Pema always jokes about, you know, when you start working in community with other people where it's like, I see your Shempa. So it's like, I see your shadow work. But how as either a coach, a colleague, a leader, a friend who's really seeing shadow come out of somebody, any suggestions for how do we hold space for that? You know, it's like, I see your shadow, you know, that's coming out of you right now. But like, how do we do that in a way that's not public shaming, that's, you know, not detrimental, but actually really supportive for everyone's learning and growth and transformation? Yeah. <sighs> you know, one of the things that's used, have you spoken about internal family systems therapy or any of your other guests? any point? Well, I had a uh, Jim Fadiman and uh, Jordan Gruber on talking about Symphony of Selves, which of has selves, a lot yeah. of overlap, but I actually haven't had anyone specifically from IFS come. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just say internal family systems therapy has been used a lot with MDMA therapy for PTSD, um, but it was developed outside of that. And the quick version of the model is that there are different parts of ourselves and they have different relationships with one another. And one of the strategies of internal family systems from the therapeutic model is to ask permission from the parts of ourselves, let's say the protector parts of ourselves, uh, to speak more directly to the exiles, which is, I, I frame as their version of the shadow mm. in IFS. Mm. So when we're doing that work with ourselves, we, we can ask permission from the other parts of ourselves that have 
the defensive armor up and like ready to fight or project to asking like, can we lay those arms aside and, and then work with whatever the exile is? But that process of asking permission, right, from someone is important because it's important to really respect someone else's agency and their emotional state. If this is a close friend of yours that's in a community, then you can have a one-on-one conversation and still say, hey, I've been noticing something and I, I wondered if it'd be okay for us to, to talk about. It. And I'm doing so from a place of really caring about you and um, wanting to support you know, your mission or whatever it is that, that you're hoping or our mission, right? Something that's, that's bigger than the two of us. So working within the relationship is critical. You have relationship capital that you can use when having these more challenging conversations. But I think too, when we're thinking about giving feedback to someone else, we still have to start with that question. Is this about me? (laughs) Is there something in them that's triggering my own insecurities? And the answer could be yes. And you're also seeing something that would be helpful to to work with and to, to speak to. But it's coming in from a place of compassion and respect. People can feel that. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, uh, as long as they're not like a, a complete psychopath, they're going to have shame that gets triggered. Mm-hmm. And shame is, is not helpful if we act out of that shame or avoidance of the shame. We get defensive again. Like we shut down. Mm-hmm. Then the projections just go back and forth, right? It's not a productive conversation. Mm-hmm. But if there's a real development of that attitude of the compassion, respect, seeing yourself and the other person in a way that builds empathy and connection, um, then I think that's felt. And and then you can have a a real one-on-one conversation. Mm -hmm. If you're coming from a place of superiority, that's not going to go well, right? Mm -hmm. I think we know this, but it's important to recognize that we're we're just not built as humans to to be completely open (laughs) to that sort of model and and feedback from someone else. Even if we nod our, our head and say, yes, we're listening Mm-hmm. Right, because they're in some external position of power doesn't mean we're internalizing and really grappling with that that feedback taken in and growing from it. Right. It's a really an advanced training, an advanced practice to be able to sit in a conversation with someone where you're either giving or receiving feedback that is difficult to give or receive. Um, you know, it's like the, the mastery of our biology to stay calm and centered. And it also is for me, the definition of narrow mind to open mind. How do we stay in the middle of the discomfort without bolting, without going off anywhere? We just notice, oh, my heart rate is going faster right now. Okay. Just noticing, but without it just spiraling into this whole trigger warfare between you and the other person, it's like advanced practice. And, you know, I'll just say when I was joking earlier, when Pema would say like, I see your Shempa or like, I see your shadow, you know, then she would say, not that way. Don't do it that way, you know? <laughs> and, and so I didn't say that part. I thought that that was crucial to add in there. The way that you offered is very grounded and a, a good approach for, for receiving feedback. And humor is important. I can't yeah. forget humor, right? It's yeah. the social glue and it's the lubricant for being able to, to play with some of these things. And if you you too can, like all of us, I, I try to open up um, with some of my clients sometimes when it's therapeutically helpful uh, to share how I've also struggled with something maybe I'm seeing in them mm-hmm. and, and or how it was hard to get feedback around that and 
how my initial reaction, like all these ways of normalizing that this is just human experience and muck that that's part of living in the world now. Um, and there, there doesn't have to be shame or rejection. That's, that's a, a part of this. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, I think often is clarifying to one's intentions and mm-hmm. um, how one was thinking they were coming off versus how one actually was. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you invoking humor because I really think that it's such a big component for all of this journey. You know, we could hold it so seriously, but then when you really just look at it, I mean, it's like life is so fucking hilarious and all of us and like how, you know, we hold so tightly to our sense of this is who I am. This is my sense of identity. I mean, it's hard to not journey with medicines and laugh at ourselves and how we yeah. do this and how we're actually just all so human in that process. So thanks for bringing that up. Uh, One more question before we wrap up here, but I'm just want to kind of get to the other end of the narrative arc. And what, what are some of your intersections between creativity, creative thinking, creative problem solving and psychedelics? Because that's such a topic that's so dear to my heart. Um, How are you framing that? How do you think about that? And what are some key takeaways that especially leaders can, can really run with here? Yeah. Um, well, it's another thing too. I kind of lucked out when I was a kid going in a public university, small town, Arkansas, and we had a gifted and talented program that was all focused on creativity. And I realized when I got my PhD, that was pretty unusual. A lot of these programs are focused on achievement. Like you just take more and more advanced classes and do more and more tests and, and things like that. But what I learned in that um, course over the years, uh, we really focused on critical thinking skills and creative problem solving. And I think you've spoken about creative problem solving on some other podcasts. And I really love that approach because it's a way creativity can be practical and have real impact. And for people who are trying to solve real problems that we're facing in this world, usually they're very complex problems and we need to have a way to systematically explore, um, clarify the problem, but then explore all the different ways we can go about um, solving it in in an ongoing live way, but recognize too that those solutions can cause more problems than maybe they're worth. Like we'd be able, we have to see the shadow of of that process um, of being solution focused too. But creativity, thinking outside the box, sometimes if you're in places like Silicon Valley, that's where my practice is, where everyone's about thinking outside the box and disruption, like sometimes being creative to be more conventional, right? Mm -hmm. It's all contextual about where you're at. Um, But we need to bring those higher capacities of of the human heart and mind to bear because we are facing some deeper existential crises collectively, like uh, uh, global warming and climate change is Mm -hmm. is the one that I think about the most. Mm -hmm. But that that's part of it. And that's going to speak to certain people if if they're um, of that kind of leadership mindset, that classic archetypal hero mindset. Um, But for many others, the creativity is a a creative uh, appreciation and uh, expression. It doesn't have to go to an expression, at least in, in thinking about art, but I definitely love supporting artists and creative people. Um, in that way, but everyone can appreciate uh, something that's symbolically meaningful to them. Like I have a film studies background. And so that was my gateway to Jung and Joseph Campbell and psychology really in a, in a deeper transpersonal way. And um, I don't make film. 
right? <laughs> I just watch a lot of film and I appreciate the, the narrative structure, the stories, the underlying meaning that sometimes is, is very personal to me. Other times is speaking to something that we need as a society, a collective. So the benefit, I think of the last chapter in particular is where all the training wheels come off. This is where you get to go out in the world and play. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the play can be play for play's sake and about enjoyment, cultivating that appreciation of life um, and, and being engaged. And a lot of it actually has a role to play for our broader collective and our future. Mm-hmm. And we need to step up yeah. and, and do so from a place of love. Right. Okay. I don't mean to keep putting you on the hot seat here, but just like two more quick questions. So, uh, leveraging the windows of mental flexibility, and this is, I am so passionate about rewriting the narrative and that's what I'm focusing my master's project on is really that looking at how can we leverage psychedelic experiences to think more creatively? Okay. So post psychedelic journey, we're maybe in the afterglow or have heightened states of mental flexibility. What are three questions, tools, techniques to help people to think bigger, think more creatively? Mm-hmm. I, so part of this is going to be personal to me. So I love journaling and I love drawing. And uh, I, I do encourage that with people. And we see this in holotropic breath work, right? It's part of the ceremonies now to do the mandala drawing at the end of, of sessions. But since I use the, the word translation to talk about psychedelic integration earlier, I think that's helpful. Like, how do we translate whatever it is about the experience we had, the emotions we had, the feelings that we had into um, the present moment? And that may be something completely different than what happened in the journey itself, but kind of came through this stream of consciousness download to, to be a... Um, a certain drawing that then becomes your next tattoo that symbolizes for you something about doing shadow work or how, how to ascend to, to play a more important and central role in society. So I really like to do um, thinking of creativity in a divergent way. I do something that's opposite of what your habit is. So if you normally journal, then try drawing instead and avoid using all words. If, if you only draw, then, then journal. If you do yoga and that's part of your integration process, you should probably do yoga still. <laughs> it's, not, it's a good practice to do, but how can you do something new and different? And that, that mindset of play is, is a helpful one to have in this because I know so many people get into this critical mind like, oh, I'm an awful drawer. I can't write or my handwriting's crappy. Like there are all these judgments come in. And if you can notice those and do it anyway, then I think you're on the right path of growing and expanding. Great. Yes. We talk a lot about that in graduate school, just the simplicity of what it means to defer judgment and why we're all so bad at that. (laughs) It's just like, we're so in the box, so critical, like, ah, we can't. And it's just even putting your guard down, deferring judgment is just a really practical tip and suggestion as well. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, three words that come to mind when you think of the notion psychedelic leadership? Mm. Heart, vision, and joy. Beautiful. I love it. I love hearing people's response to this question. It's been really a joy, actually. I'm asking everyone now on my podcast what they think of that, and that's beautiful. Any question that I did not ask you that you wish I did ask you? before we wrap up? 
yeah, I think like how how to use the book is is a fun question um, for me. I wrote it in a way to be very interactive and co-created by by the reader. But I think in my experience reading other books, it's really fun and even more useful if you're doing it with at least one other person as you're, you're having parallel journeys uh, and choosing your own activities and having experiences and coming back together and and uh, expressing what you you learned, what feelings you had. And um, kind of it, it's a way of respecting and having a sense of awe in other people and, and our interconnectedness and our unique qualities and experiences. So I think that that would be one recommendation I would have for folks. Great. Wonderful. I love that. And any last words, parting wisdom that you would love to leave our listeners with today, Kyle? Yeah. Well, I thank you for creating this, this podcast and really having these important conversations. And I just can't imagine all the really interesting listeners that you have and recognizing no matter who you are, where you're at, you have something to offer. And if you can accept that, then the possibilities are really endless. Beautiful. I love that. Open to possibilities. Let's all stay open to possibilities beyond the narrow life. That's what it's all about. I really love that name. You nailed it on that one. Good one. (laughs) All right, Kyle, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's been fun. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. I have been learning so much on this journey, and I am so grateful that you are choosing to walk alongside me on this path. If you'd like to be in touch, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or send me a message on Instagram at livefreelauraD. I'm also on Clubhouse at, you guessed it, livefreelauraD, and I'm hosting weekly microdosing rooms every Tuesday from 6 to 8 p.m. PST on all topics related to microdosing. I co-moderate rooms on the weekly psychedelic deep dive with Robbie Bent, who I featured in the last episode. And yeah, we bring amazing guests on to the Monday night talks as well. So lots happening in the clubhouse space. Please feel free to connect with me there. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, I'd so appreciate it if you could share it with a friend or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or please leave me a review on iTunes. I just found out that my podcast is trending under the entrepreneur category. I guess there's no psychedelic category yet, but with the way things are happening in the movement, maybe that will change pretty soon. But I'm trending on the list, so if you leave me a review, that would really help my rankings. I'm going to leave you with this song called Help Us Love by Mikey Pauker and Johanna Onehart. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. 